Hi, friends. Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm your host, Zach Anderson Pettit. My guest today is Jack Olton, CEO at NeuroID. NeuroID is unlocking the world's behavioral data. Specifically, their technology helps identify genuine versus fraudulent customers during the onboarding process. They leverage behavioral data to reveal, quote unquote, the digital intent behind the screen. NeuroID to me feels a lot like a number of sci-fi movies that we've all seen. It's really the future in so many ways. This episode of For Fintech's Sake is brought to you by Vsum. Vsum is a no-cost virtual conference exploring the value stack of the internet through live technology briefings and moderated small group discussions. Each virtual conference is limited to 100 people and the spots go fast. Learn more and apply to join at v-sum.com. Before we jump in today, I have to say one big thank you to Jeffrey Shu at VGS, who made the introduction to Jack. When he explained what they were running after, I barely understood it, but I knew I was interested, as many listeners know, is somewhat standard on this show. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jack Alton. Jack, welcome to For Fintech Sake, my friend. I've been excited to have this interview since Jeffrey Shu, the man, the legend at VGS, introduced us. From my perspective, like really a fascinating way of looking at the world of business and kind of how humans and cultures all play into that. So before we get into neuro ID and everything that you're kind of focused on day to day right now, let's go a little bit kind of back in time to the early days of Jack's life. Talk me through like, where are you from? Kind of how you grew up? Were there any things in your early years that kind of led to this entrepreneurial tendency? Like, why are you a crazy person today? You know, let's start there. <laughs> yeah, you should probably ask my wife of 27 years. She would be able to give you the real scoop. But uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I grew up here in Montana. I'm coming to you from Whitefish, Montana. Yeah, fifth generation Montanan. My, my relatives settled here in the late 1800s. Uh, long before it was cool, long before uh, Yellowstone was a thing. And I uh, grew up here, went to college here, had the opportunity to move down to Austin, Texas, right after college. Got involved uh, with selling cell phones in the early days when they were bags and brick phones and, and uh, less than a half a percent of the population had them. That was just an awesome opportunity to grow up in an organization, Macaw Cellular, the inventors of wireless, you know, really focused on people, quality and profit. Uh, so they were Malcolm Baldrige award winning service company. So I didn't know it at the time, but I was growing up in a in an unbelievable culture and in an unbelievably fast growing industry and just got a, the idea of technology kind of transforming people's lives. So you know, back in 1993, probably before you were born, Zach, I was handing cell phones to people and I watched their face change as they got untethered from their desk and from their home for the first time. And they could roam about and uh, live, work and play the way they, they wanted to. And then um, the next stop was kind of a, a really cool one. I got to go work for the company that invented Wi-Fi. In fact, it wasn't even called Wi-Fi uh, when I went there. But another kind of disruptive technology where we used to be tethered to an you know, cord for connectivity for our laptops and our computers. And again, got to work in a turnaround opportunity there where uh, the company Wayport was the pioneers in Wi-Fi. We ended up turning the pro you know, profit, turning the company profitable, got to run the go-to-market there, had a fantastic team there. 
and ended up selling it to AT&T to offload a lot of the traffic that they had on the iPhone. And um, it's still a major division of AT&T called AT&T Wi-Fi Services now. So that was another fun stop along the way. I think the other thing that is a little unique is that I realized early on uh, as I got to work with some unbelievable A players is that you could actually work with your friends if they were the right ones and you could create this unbelievable culture where you worked hard and you played hard together. You know, you didn't really have to have this personal life and this business life. You could, you could have it all 24 seven. So I started pulling together a team of these eight players and moving from, from company to company. And what I found is that we could move much faster, even small teams could move very fast when they trusted one another, when they had executed in the past together, we could come in and literally transform a company's go-to-market and and help uh, make it grow. So did that. And the last three companies that we did that for have about $2 billion liquidity. And that kind of takes us up to, you know, the last four years ago when I, when I started coming as the CEO at NeuroID. So there's like so many threads there that I want to pull on, but I think one of the most interesting ones is starting with the question of, were you a co-founder for any of these? I mean, you've, you've seen these exits, but you've kind of joined post novel technology, right? Like the thread that I see is kind of like a novel technology gets invented. The technologists get it as far as they can. And then you need that kind of sales muscle to come in and scale it. Has that kind of been the wash, rinse, repeat situation? Or have you previous to NeuroID, have you been a co-founder at all? I have not been a co-founder. It is exactly what you described where you have these brilliant co-founders that invented things like Wi-Fi or device fingerprinting, or in this case, behavioral analytics. And they're, they're these game-changing ideas, and uh, they're very, very close to figuring out how to scale it, how to take it to market. Uh, but they're missing that piece of really connecting that product market fit. They don't have a feedback loop for the market that allows them to get real customer feedback, not what they hope to be the customer feedback. So in the last three uh, ventures before uh, NeuroID, all of them had worked really hard to get the first few customers, but were really uh, struggling with starting to break toward profitability, finding where, where how can we get a, a rinse and repeat motion to, to really accelerate our go-to-market? How can we expand through partnerships and create strategic value? And that's really where um, myself and, and members of my team have been able to come in in the last three companies and now this fourth one at, at NeuroID. The others were all what I would call, they've done a lot of the work. One of the things I think I may have told you before is... Um, in all three of the companies before, they'd been in existence for five, six, seven years, and they had raised anywhere from $100 million in capital to call it $20 million. And I kind of arrived and said, gosh, you've got three or four customers, you know, your technology is working, but what have you guys been doing for the last, you know, five or six years? <laughs> yeah. And now I have the, the wrinkles and scars to... Um, to understand what it's like to take something from a patented idea or a concept on the back of an envelope 
to your first customer. There's a whole leg of the journey there that I hadn't yet experienced when I came to NeuroID in, in 2017. They had the technology, but the prior three were really um, these companies that had brilliant founders. They had ideas. They had maybe a customer two or three, but they just really didn't um, have, have the ability to accelerate and find those strategic partnerships or find the right place in the market to scale. How did you develop that muscle, right? I mean, going back in your your history, obviously you've done sales before, everything from like hand-to-hand combat sales, it seems like into kind of what you're talking more about, which is, you know, the scalable wash, rinse, repeat way of doing it. But how did you learn that? Did you, I'm guessing, just guessing, it might not have been in school. It might've been a little bit more school of hard knocks, but how, how did you develop those muscles? That's a great question. You know, even back in the days when I would sell cell phones, there was a couple different ways you could do it. You could be the guy that, or, or the gal that's banging out 200, 300 calls like you see on um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. Or you can figure out how can I sell cell phones in a more strategic way. And um, what I realized is that these large corporations back then, they'd only had 10 or 15 people that they would put on their individual credit under the company's umbrella, but they may have a thousand employees that are making semiconductors as an example. And because they didn't have great credit at the time, they didn't have access to getting a cell phone. So one time the the CEO of one of these companies was getting an install in his car in our at our cellular store. And I asked him, I said, hey, I have all your people come into our store all the time and they want to get a cell phone, but they don't have the credit. Have you ever considered offering cell phones as a benefit. And he was like, well, we would, we don't know if we'd want to take on that credit risk. And I said, well, what if you treated it like a benefit? I said, you offer them a 401k, you offer them all these benefits. Now, how many of them actually sign up for them and use them? And he said, Mm -hmm. less than 10%. I said, well, I have literally tens, if not hundreds of your employees that come in here and they really want a cell phone. But with the current credit rules we have, they don't have established credit. So we send them out the door but they work for your company, what if we put a payroll deduction program in place where you could, after six months of good service, you could offer this as a benefit where you would put your company credit out there to to facilitate them getting a phone, but then you'd have guaranteed payment by them authorizing payroll deduction for their monthly phone expense. And we watched as company after company implemented this and we went from, you know, my peers were selling one-off phones, driving them out, delivering them to only people who could get credit. I started organizing classes where 30, 40, 50 people would come get a phone at once from particular companies. The HR managers would sign off on them. The CEOs thought the benefit was an amazing benefit to them. So I think that the reason for that story is just figuring out how to do things differently, how to look at things as adding strategic value instead of just commoditized value is something that was intuitive to me kind of from the beginning. And then I just carried that throughout. So when we went to the various other companies, it was instead of trying to sell more to just one person, how do we unlock strategic value for corporations and do things, kind of look at things differently? And we're following that same model now four companies later. That's wild. It sounds like, I mean, leaning into the Glengarry Glen Ross thing, like you, you won the Cadillac and you earned your coffee, like no steak knives for you <laughs> after that one. That's, that's solid, man. That's really interesting. It sounds, I mean, almost like opening of the mind and the willingness to find kind of, I don't know, it's almost an overused trope at this point, but like a win, win, win kind of thing, right? It's not just like, how do I sell you this pen? But 
I bet your whole organization needs this pen. How are they writing yeah. if they don't have access to this ink? We need to democratize access to ink or something like that. It's interesting. Yeah. Just to finish it off, when you when you said that, I, I've often wondered how many amazing ideas have been stranded. How many founders have had these brilliant ideas and, and they were just missing the one piece of positioning for the value to really be received in the market? And I have to believe it's, you know, you, you look at the VC model and they say they're going to invest in 10 and, and one of them is going to be a grand slam, three or four are going to break even and six or seven are going to fail. What if we, what if we brought more help to the party, you know, for a model like that? So instead of just throwing capital at it and, you know, saying, Hey, sink or swim, you had more of a guided approach where you really looked at what was the, what the problem in the market. In the, in the prior example, the problem was access to credit and the business didn't know that they could deliver it and they didn't know that that could be a huge perceived value more so than a, back then a 401k or, or benefits for that matter. So it just makes me wonder how many amazing technologies are sitting out there today that really are breakthrough game-changing technologies, but they just haven't uh, been able to uh, acquire the right personnel to really let them blossom in the market and give them their full opportunity to, to succeed. Yeah, man, you're like a university tech transfer organization's dream like that that whole <laughs> explanation right there we have this thing in kansas city uh well not even in kansas city i guess it's national now it's called whiteboard to boardroom uh and there's a company mm-hmm. that kind of came out of that whole thing in kansas city that was one of our larger exits called uh i verify that later became zolos they got acquired by ant financial but everything you're saying is very accurate. There's actually a guy that guy that reminds me a lot of you named Toby Rush that has built and sold a number of companies, but only, I think his first one, he was a founder and in everything since then has just been like technologies come across his desk. He identifies the ones that maybe have some ability to change the world, spends, you know, number of years on those changes the world in some kind of way, goes back, spends time with family, wash, rinse, repeat, do it again. So it seems like the, yeah. the overlap there is pretty strong. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's cool. You think about it. It started out of Stanford. This tech launch or tech transfer initiative came out of Stanford. And you know, we're actually, NeuroIDEA is a direct benefactor of that. Our two founders are doctoral professors, and we are a, a tech launch initiative company out of the University of Arizona. So the universities have really gone a long ways to helping create environments where their best and brightest don't have to you know, do work in a clandestine, you know, apartment or office, they can take advantage of the full resources of the university and do it in broad daylight and celebrate those wins rather than, you know, leave their academic career. So it's a, it's a really cool business model, but, but it still needs experience and demonstrated track record, I think, to come in to give those technologies a real fighting chance at, at delivering on their full potential in the market. No, I totally agree. The number of those that die on the vine that could potentially, I mean, just like even things like carbon capture and things that could dramatically change the way we even think about environmental science or, you know, anything else. It seems like a lot of those things are just kind of out there with some scientists in a dark hole, like you said, and they need that other side of the brain, which kind of leads me into, we'll get to NeuroID in one second, but one thing that I want to kind of understand a little bit more that I think is pretty unique is this 
this organism or this group of people that you've kind of built around yourself that go from company to company to company kind of thing. And, you know, you, you hear about that with, uh, with co-founders, right? You hear about a CEO and a COO or a CEO and a CTO, they sell a company, they go do it again, but you don't hear about it. I don't think as much in a handful of people or larger. So I guess the first question is how did you identify those people Second, how have you kept them around this long? I mean, you create some economic value. I guess that helps. But what other pieces to that or culture creation or like working around and with you, you think would attribute to that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the old adage of their strength in numbers is true. Um, When you think about how hard business is and you think about getting to market ultimately and getting revenue created and value being demonstrated by your customers, that's hard, right? And then if you also then think about trying to pull together a a group of strangers who've never executed or operated together, you're adding, you know, several layers of complexity. Do we trust one another? Can we deliver all the things that maybe you've already seen? So I would argue that that it's uh, you can take complexity out of the internal organization. Do you have organizational health? Do you have cultural alignment? Um, or do you guys have, share a why that's that's really powerful to where you're not guessing, you know, are these people going to leave? Are they truly dedicated to it? That takes away a major burden that most companies are struggling with every day, which is, can I create a culture that'll keep this, this hodgepodge group of people that I've built together that I don't even know if they're fundamentally aligned? I tried to assess it during an interview process. So personally, Let's say, for example, you know, we've talked about it in sales and marketing and go to market and biz dev, but the same goes for engineering, the data science. Uh, I would rather uh, find the data science leader or the engineering leader that has a demonstrated track record of success and people love working for him or her in the market and literally port that team over to go rinse and repeat and and take everything they learned and they were already successful. And now they get to either elevate their role or elevate the value proposition. That to me is a, is a much more logical model than trying to just pull together people that you don't know if, if they are going to work or not. And then you're managing people in and out of an organization that all has a cost. And, and if you're not doing that, you can focus all your attention on the go to market instead. That explanation just shifted the way that I think about team structure in an interesting way. So previous previous to that explanation, I've always thought of like joining a team as like to butcher an armed services metaphor kind of thing. It's almost like joining a military branch, right? Like you're, I'm going to join this company. I'm going to join this team. And that's like joining the Marines. Right. And what you just kind of said to me, I think is interesting because that shifts it from I'm going to join an army to I'm in the Navy SEALs and the Navy SEALs has different missions that will happen over different years, over different time frames. And what you've built is the SEAL team. Right. And that SEAL team can go attack on water. It can go attack here. It can go attack there. But the SEAL team stays together and the missions change. And the mission is the company, not the armed services. That was really interesting. I I haven't heard anybody else kind of explain it that way outside of co-founders. Kind of like I said before, it's it's interesting. How big is that group? Some of the people that worked for me down in Austin uh, were crazy enough to move up here to Whitefish, Montana. Uh, move their families and and uh, we call it every time we reunite we say it's like a wrinkled up old rock band going out to tour for uh, one more time one more greatest <laughs> hits tour 
But, uh, you know, I'd call it a core group of 25 to 50 people that um, wow. are part of these prior prior liquidity events. And some sometimes, you know, they get pulled in at different stages if, if a company doesn't have a partnership strategy or a strategic account strategy, it doesn't make sense to pull those people that have executed there. So if we're in an acquisition mode where we don't have a lot of account management or customer success, you know, you pull from what you need at the time. But um, I kind of operate on this premise that we've all been a part of winning teams before in our life. And it might have been a soccer team. It might have been a baseball team, a football team, may have been a band event or something where, I mean, you won at a level that it excited you and was fun. And I just try to create an environment where everyone can feel like they have a, an opportunity to make a major contribution toward a really big aspirational goal. And um, we've never, never had one as big as the opportunity here at NeuroID. So uh, this one's, this one's really kind of opening my eyes and, and uh, has a lot of, lot of angles that I've never had to had the opportunity to work before. So we're really excited about this one. That's fascinating. I mean, 25 to 50 people is not a, that's not a small group. I was halfway expecting you to say 10 or less, but that's, that's wild. So let's, let's, we'll come back to the leadership stuff and the the team building stuff. Cause I think it all interplays into neuro ID a little bit, but let's start with kind of the, a little bit more of the preamble that you kind of gave about the Stanford side of things and where the technology came from. But let's start with, you know, second grade level here. What is neuro ID? What is behavioral analytics and the way that you all talk about it and kind of maybe even what's a what's an easy use case to describe that? For sure. I'll go back to the first time I saw it. You know, a lot of technologies, you almost have to be a data scientist to understand them. And, and then you kind of think about how big is that market opportunity? But some technologies you see and this intuitive nature just comes across you. You're like, okay, well, obviously there's something big there. These guys have figured it out. Now can we get it to market? And so what NeuroID does is um, essentially starts to allow organizations to see their behavioral data. So the, the big idea is that every company that's doing business online, every digital organization, they have hundreds, thousands, if not millions of human beings that are trying to interact with them digitally. And they're trying to tell them things or they're not trying to tell them things if they're a fraudster. And so what we have been able to do is with one JavaScript integration into any onboarding flow of a new customer, a merchant, a sole proprietor, a business, we've been able to look at these tabs, types, and swipes, how someone interacts with a mobile or a cursor device. And we've been able to extract meaning from that. And much like if you and I were in person and we were sitting across from one another, we would be exchanging these verbals, these nonverbals in our own AI in our head. There's countless studies that show within 100 milliseconds, we start to make really accurate first takes on trustworthiness. Do we want to build a relationship with this person? Are they happy? Are they sad? Those are all things that, that humans have used for millennia. To, to build relationships, to do business, to interact from day to day. But then when we pushed everything online, that all went dark. And it's reflected in the conversion rates. You look at e-commerce conversion rates or single digits, lending, insurance, uh, merchant onboarding, something really wrong is happening if uh, a thousand people come to your funnel every day and a hundred are getting through. And it's really, it has been the lack of visibility into this real-time 
in-session behavior that's occurring as people are interacting with your brand. I know that you kind of started in the financial services area and maybe that for the listener base here is the easiest way to kind of understand it. But is it truly as simple as just understanding if I click here instead of there, if I go back on an account opening page or I go forward, like what what's a very kind of obvious use case or walkthrough for that experience? And, and are you specifically focused on the fraud piece or is it also like the glass half full, like kind of increasing those conversion numbers as well? That's a great point. When we first came to market, we focused on telling our story and introducing our technology to the chief risk officer Mm. um, because we feel like he or she has probably one of the most difficult jobs in any digital organization because with very limited information, without any of these verbals and nonverbals that we used to operate off of these cues, they're supposed to make a really good indication of whether or not Zach is who he says he is and whether or not Zach's intentions are good. And that's really tough because until NeuroID came to market, the only data they had was historical data to figure that out. So they'd look at device and they'd look at geo and proxy and uh, they'd pull a soft credit check and they'd say, okay, based on all of this and based on what we've seen in our consortium data in the past, we think this person's risk level is here or here. What we did is said, use all that information, use all that historical information that you've built, all the third-party alternative and trending data, but now add this exciting new layer. This is your data. We're just going to unpack it for you. This behavior that's transmitting every day from these millions of customers, they're leaving, they're giving you cues that will help you see your best customers and also see your customers that are trying to disguise themselves as their best customers. So we came in through risk, through the chief risk officers first and the data science teams. But what we found is that our ability, so that that helped them isolate their, their fraud customers better. Some examples, we have, uh, you know, a hundred billion dollar company that was able to knock down historical fraud by 35% just by implementing our technology. Um, so, so we really punched out that use case on the fraud and risk side. But along the way, every time we would show our customers their own behavioral data, they would literally get up from the boardroom table and walk toward the screen. <laughs> because they've been wanting to know, they've been having these debates internally, why are nine out of 10 people not getting through? Are they really 90% fraudsters? Or do we have an issue, a false positive issue, where we also can't see our genuine customers? And because of our fear of fraud and risk, we're starting out with this, you're guilty until you prove yourself innocent. And and that's really, to, to close that off, What what's happening is, We've developed this behavioral dashboard called the Friction Index Dashboard that with that same JavaScript integration that feeds the fraud and risk teams, this new source of data for fraud and risk, it also unpacks a view into the customer journey that supersedes anything that's been, that's happened out there. And so now product, CX, marketing, CEO and founders are all looking at this because it's finally answering these age-old debates on what's going wrong or what's going right in our customer journey. And it gets them out of this state of guessing and gives them the real ground truth and the data to really optimize conversion experience as well as uh, detect sophisticated fraud. 
Yeah, it's fascinating how the limiting or like the CYA on the downside leads to significant upside just by understanding what's going on kind of a thing. It leads me to the question of how much time is necessary. So that $100 billion company example, right? Decreasing fraud by 35%. Is there like a training timeframe here where you need to take in their data, append that to your existing understanding of the world? Or is it like your existing understanding of the world? And as you can tell, I'm incredibly technical by these terms. Does your existing version of the world just inform that company automatically? Is it kind of that one line of JavaScript and we're off to the races, 35% decrease? Or is there like an algorithm training timeframe or something like that? Yeah, the, um, the exciting part for us is we've built enough models. We've correlated enough outcomes from customers across all these verticals that we now have off-the-shelf models that deliver J1 value. So we now can integrate that JavaScript and two kind of magical things happen for our customers. One, they get a new source of data. So we translate that behavioral data that is theirs into actionable insight that can be fed right into AI and ML models. These fraud attributes, these behavioral attributes become a new source of food for those models to increase the predictive accuracy of detecting fraud. The second thing that happens simultaneously and the moment the JavaScript gets installed is this behavioral dashboard lights up and they get to now start seeing where are things going wrong or right in our customer journey. And what we found is this becomes the new tool for cross-departmental collaboration. So Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, fraud and risk is sitting on the most valuable source of data inside the organization. And they can then share that. And then now, instead of marketing and, and CX and product pulling from one source of analytics to try to make decisions and then forcing it downhill to fraud, they can all be on the same kind of universal picture into the customer journey. It's all data-driven that allows them to really start optimizing conversion and minimizing risk simultaneously. This is random, but have you ever heard of a company called Full Story? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. We've seen, if you look at the testimonials for, for, for Full Story, it's really kind of a testament to what we're doing. Yeah. What we've had people tell us is what you're doing is Full Story at scale, right? It's smart, Full Story. Yeah. Uh, so the reason everybody was so excited about Full Story is for the first time, they were getting to see the actual behaviors of their customer. And I think that helped a lot of organizations knock some really rough spots off of areas in their customer journey that they may not have been able to see. The challenge really becomes is how do you do that at scale? Are you going to have rooms full of people that are watching recordings of your customers? Because then they're all going to come to subjective determinations on what that jostle or jigger meant on the customer journey. What NeuroID has done is taken all of that behavior and allowed you to be able to do that at scale so that you can see aggregate and session level behaviors. So our customers can implement, use the new source of data. If they want to go in and look at an individual instance of a journey, they can do that to verify what they're doing with their strategy, but not try to extract meaning from it and pull seven different data sources together, which again, the opportunity to do something on that particular customer journey has come and gone. 
And the other thing we've seen with the use of session repay alone is you'll fix one thing in your customer journey and then unbeknownst to you, it breaks something else at another point in the journey. And right. we're really moving down this path of personalization where everyone is being treated as an individual instead of just how do we move the herd through most effectively. Yeah, it's been it's been about six years, I think, since I interacted with Full Story, but I used to run a what was called a client happiness team. We had about eight people and I was leading it. And it was kind of our job to not only make clients happy, but kind of figure out different pieces of funnel optimization and jump into different stages in the funnel and try and kind of nurture them through with live chat or whatever it was. And your point about the subjectivity of it is intense. I mean, the amount of, we not even close to any kind of fraud conversation. Like there's no no intelligence on that side of things. So yeah, that's like totally separate, but the subjective conversations that happen as a result of that, it almost feels like the drawn carriage of what we're kind of talking about here, because I would sit in rooms and have arguments stakeholders inside of the company about, well, they dropped off on this page. That means this, but it was, you know, it's this end of one thing where I need to then go back, develop statistical significance, which is basically impossible with the set of, with the database we had at that point. This is just math, right? This isn't me sitting in a room trying to like be louder and say things in a more intense (laughs) way. Like this is just like, it stands on its own and it just is what it is. I mean, the risk side apart, just the funnel optimization alone, I'm sure is it's a flywheel that turns each other, but it almost feels like eventually you're going to have to separate the two businesses because they're both going to be so damn big. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, I think you said it earlier. You, you used the term when you can CYA on the fraud and risk side, a lot of things become possible. And what we've seen and is evidenced, the fraud and risk stack today is over tools. And it doesn't provide the visibility you need to really move things forward. So if you just go look at, I really focus on conversion rates, digital conversion rates. They haven't changed. They haven't changed in a decade now. So we've become used to saying, hey, how do we grow our business? Well, we got to drive more to the top of the funnel because we've got a 9.2% conversion rate. And we've never been able to figure out why do we have a 9.2% conversion rate. And it's because, you know, because our JavaScript sees everything. It sees where people come in and where they leave and what the behaviors happen before, during, and after they leave. And so being able to allow the fraud and risk team to see better allows them to be a better partner to the CX product and marketing side. And you're right, they, they then feed off of one another. And so, yeah, it's, that's, that's why I guess when I say I've never had these avenues and these venues for market expansion at my disposal before, and it's, it's really exciting to see how horizontally scalable the technology is and how we can push this technology into places that people have even thought of before. Yeah, I mean, uh, listening to you talk, even in, you know, the 30, 40 minutes that we've been talking so far, it feels like probably every door you open is another problem that is solved by some piece of your technology. It It seems like you're probably just peeling back layers of the onions and discovering a new problem at every stage, almost, I would think. And in different industries, right? Last time we talked, you were very financially focused. And this time, I mean, not that you shifted, but now, you know, insurance is gone gangbusters. So maybe that's worth talking through as well is like what, what industries are using neuro ID for any different reasons, or is it pretty much kind of the same use case 
through different industries, just through that lens of the industry. To finish off on your first statement on the different areas that you could take it, that can be a blessing and a curse when yeah. you're a startup. Now, when you have when you have a technology that people get excited about, and it has a somewhat universal applicability into different use cases, you really have to focus. You have to hedgehog on what are we going to go punch out and demonstrate uh, with the data that that we can then expand. And I think that that was one of the things we really had to remind ourselves because we would do demonstrations of our technology and customers would get so excited they'd want to introduce us to other verticals. And it seemed counterintuitive at the time to say, we appreciate it, but we're, we're really going to stay focused on online lending as an example, which is where we grew up in a really sophisticated space there. But we knew if we could add value there and if we could both show this as a new source of data from a data science standpoint and let our customers drive us to what they really wanted, which is the ability to interact and see their behavioral data, that we could then expand. So it took a little discipline to to not go chase uh, all the different verticals early. But we're now, once we got the company in a position to where our off-the-shelf day one value superseded uh, anything else that was out there, we knew then it was it was time to go take it into other verticals. So today we're in lending, we're in payments, we're in merchant onboarding, as well as insurance. And those are the, you know, that's a lot to say uh, grace over for a while. We've got a lot of expansion use cases uh, that are going on inside of all of those verticals now beyond the initial digital onboarding of a customer that, um, that I think will help really digitally transform all of those industries. You mentioned starting with the chief risk officer kind of in the the early days in terms of the conversations. After you sign the contract, implement, and you know, you're working with a company, be it in any of those industries, honestly, who do you find is your biggest proponent? Like who who ends up after six to twelve months being your biggest fan? Yeah, I mean if you think about it uh, at the highest level where if you come in through risk, your value proposition is going to be to add new value to their risk model and either drive down costs uh, for fraud. So that that in itself is great. It's a huge problem to solve, but it's, it's on the side of the ledger of operational efficiency. Mm-hmm. What's exciting about the technology is it has the ability to, to go over to top line revenue growth in a very big way. Uh, because when I have the opportunity to talk to the CEOs and the founders of our customers, um, they're happy, obviously, with knocking down fraud. You know, it, it allows them to tell a great story there. But what what gets them really excited is the fact that we, for the first time, can help them see their genuine customers so that they can begin to provision those customers faster to remove unnecessary friction for these good customers. So when we start talking about moving away from single digit conversions, started creating digital first impressions that are unbelievable. There's a few companies that have cracked that out there and they're getting a disproportionate share of the market. So when when we move from you know risk and fraud over to elevate all the way up to the top of the organization, and we show them how many of their genuine customers are not being treated as such, it really shows this world of opportunity to kind of 
transform their businesses in a way that they just haven't had that visibility before. So I'd say moving from operational efficiencies on the fraud and risk side, certainly we always want to punch out that. It's a great way for us to get into organizations, but being able to optimize customer experience to, to measure your digital customer experience at scale with our friction index dashboard. When you think about what CEOs are trying to do today, they're, they're trying to go to major providers of digital surveys, they may get 5% response rates and the responses are polarized and they're subjective and they're looking back on something that happened with our JavaScript. They can start to see the experience every one of their customers is having literally in real time uh, as it's happening. And that's that's the type of stuff that gets us over to the growth growth side of the business, which is, is really, you know, helps us move very quickly. The more I listen to you talk, the more I kind of understand NeuroID. I mean, even just talking to Jeffrey early on about, you know, hey, you should meet Jack at NeuroID. Like when you explain the company, it does seem like a no brainer, right? It's just you see the technology kind of to your point about, you know, you saw it and you're like, all right, let's go do this thing. But it also isn't incredibly straightforward, I wouldn't think, right? Like the the neural nets and the machine learning AI, like a lot of the, the the buzzwords du jour are involved here and are actually being used here. And I'm curious, you see this technology that's very obvious. How much have you had to learn? How have you scaled yourself and like understanding of AI? I mean, this is like this is people that spend 70 years in this stuff and get nowhere. So I'm fascinated by what you've been able to learn in four years and how much of it you maybe were thinking about before you joined and kind of started running NeuroID or if it's all just been a really drinking from a fire hose of, of ML white papers and things like that. Yeah, well, before I joined, I knew nothing about behavioral data science and behavioral models. Uh, I know know more about it probably than I ever wanted to know about it as a function of getting to market, but um, have certainly been blessed. Our two co-founders are literally leaders in this space. They have 30,000 plus Google Scholar citations for their work in this field of human-computer interaction. So, you know, without them building the initial models, uh, helping us translate it, I mean, they went out to the customers with me as we were trying to understand requirements and see what the real problems were. And, um, you know, they, along the way, you know, we built a lot of models. We tested a lot of models. We back-tested them with customers on blind sets of data. And uh, it's really exciting now to be at a point to where we know, you know, we've seen hundreds uh, now of millions of outcomes. And, and it's really great to see that the technology is at a point where it can scale. But, yeah, I, I learned a little more than a, than a kid from Montana probably should learn about behavioral models. Yeah, I mean, Eric Schmidt or somebody like that probably has a house in Montana now, but I would think that you're probably in like the top 1% or something of ML knowledge in that their state. Yeah, I don't know about that, but uh, but enough enough to know, uh, I guess, how to position it, how to sell it, how to, how to get the first deals done. And now, you know, the exciting part for the team that is being pulled together again here, we've been to this rodeo. We've been to the point where we have you know, some really happy customers across multiple verticals that'll hop on a phone and reference us and say, hey, the technology is amazing. The team is even better to work with. And this is exciting to be at the point where the, all the blood, sweat and tears over the last four years are coming to fruition where we can really start to scale out and um, tell the company story. So in 2021, 
It's going to be about making our customers the hero and the data that we unlock for them the hero. And and there'll be a lot of a lot of pretty cool uh, stories and and that we're going to be releasing here in 2021 that I think will help the market understand what we're really doing. I love it, man. Well, I, you know, I could talk to you for all day, but I know we're, we're kind of coming up on time here. And I think that's a, a beautiful entree into the last question. And then in six, eight months, something like that, we're going to have to do a follow up, see how things are going. And I'm just going to, I guess I just have to come to Montana and hang out in Whitefish and that's just going to be, going to be forced, going to be forced to do this in person. Dang. Uh, <laughs> but the last, the last question truly is kind of about, you know, what you just mentioned, but specifically how for FinTech sake listeners can help you. So I imagine as you're growing, as you're um, expanding, as you said, you're probably hiring, probably looking for folks to join the team, but also probably interested in having some new conversations with customers of different stripes. So how should people get in touch with you? Who would you like to talk to and where can people find job listings? Absolutely. Yeah, obviously, uh, neuro-id.com. Uh, has our job listings. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn. We'd love for you to follow us on LinkedIn. We've got a pretty active blog. We put our hiring postings out there as well for people that are considering either becoming a customer or a potential employee. You know, our mission is to unlock the world's behavioral data. And we're literally at the very beginning of it. We've done it for some of the biggest companies in the world. But in 2021 and beyond, our goal is going to be to to make access to this much easier for anyone out there that has a digital journey. So if you're a, a world-class engineer, developer, and you want to come work on something that's truly transformational, we've been bringing some unbelievable talent over. And what we're finding is there there's very few propositions you can work on where you get to see customer reaction to the work that you're doing. And, and that's one of the things we're taking advantage of. So anybody that wants to improve their digital onboarding experience, anybody that would love to come work for us, you can hit me up directly on LinkedIn or go to our site. Wonderful. I will link to both of those things in the show notes so folks can find it easily from whatever device they're listening on. And that's it for today, Jack. I appreciate you, man. This has been a blast. Thanks for sharing everything in your brain. Hey, very much appreciate you. It's been great getting to know you, Zach, and best of luck in your future podcast. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Jack Alton, CEO at NeuroID. I've included the pertinent links to find Jack and learn more about NeuroID in the show notes. As I said before, this episode was brought to you by vSum. Go to v-sum.com to learn more and apply to be part of our next event. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app as the responsible podcast host that I am. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, and watch out for flying squirrels. They're everywhere. I'm really not kidding. There, there are a lot more of them than you than you think. So watch out for them. See you next week.